you have a Bible, you can turn in Proverbs to chapter 3. The reading from God's Word comes to us from Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read verses 19 through 27. Lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul an adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Thus far, the reading of God's word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask the Lord's blessing upon the reach, reading and the preaching of his word. You are the maker of heaven and earth. The wonder to consider that you have made all things the farthest reach of the cosmos. You generated and sustained by a word. You uphold all things even now by the word of your power. All things hold together in Christ. And you speak to us, addressing us as your people. What a good gift, O oh Lord. So be pleased to speak to our hearts as only you can, attending your word by the Spirit, opening our eyes to the vistas of your love opening our eyes to the magnitude of grace and mercy that is passed unto us, opening our eyes to the loveliness of righteousness, which you work even now by your Spirit. Be pleased, Lord, to do what only you can, as the Lord Jesus Christ brings to pass the full scope of blessings which he has won on behalf of his people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Westminster Shorter Catechism, beginning the Ten Commandments proper. We'll read questions 43 and 44, and you'll find that the text of Scripture is right there in the question, but I'll read it anyway from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. This is the Word of God. And God spoke all these words saying 
I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Mm -hmm. Thus ends the reading of God's word. So then question 43 asks, what is the preface to the Ten Commandments? The preface to the Ten Commandments is in these words. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And question 44, what doth the preface to the Ten Commandments teach us? The preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord and our God and Redeemer, Therefore, we are bound to keep all his commandments. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me, you probably skip the preface of most books. <laughs> I'm really interested in the book itself. I don't want any words in the front that keep me from what I opened the book to get at. A number of uh, theologians have made the point that many people approach the Ten Commandments the same way. You don't get as much attention to the preface as you do to the Ten Words themselves. But the preface is indispensable to the Ten Words. You see that in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Who's me? <laughs> Me takes its reference from the preface. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. To jump right into the ten words ignoring the preface is to dislodge the words from the excellent one who speaks them. And from the position from which he speaks them. As one who has showcased his bounty to those who have received them. If you skip the preface, incidentally, you also skip the gospel. Skipping the preface, you run the risk of reversing that ever so important sequence of blessing, then obedience, and making it obedience in order to obtain blessing. This would have been the gospel to Israel, as it were. Christ sets this up as he comes, saying that he has an exodus that he needs to accomplish. He has a slavery, the yoke of which he has to break. All of this would have been an allusion to that great event, which sat at the heart of Israel's identity as a people, as those who had been taken not from a neutral position, but from a condition of slavery. To belong to the living and true God. Who God is. Who God is in relation to us. The vast blessings and benefits he has rendered unto us. All of this serves to incite us. To trust. To obedience. To love. <laughs> To hear the other ten words apart from this is to mishear the ten words. Perhaps you obtain a semblance of what they call for, but you won't obtain the substance because they won't proceed from a heart of love. 
This is God's word to his people as our God who has rescued us. Archbishop James Usher exhorts us, the law is to be obeyed because it proceeds from him who is not only the Lord, our maker, but also our God and our savior. Every sweetening influence is brought to pass in the heart of the Christian who still struggles with the notion of obedience, don't we? Though the father has amply and regularly demonstrated that he is good through and through and that he calls his people to nothing but good still because we wrestle with the old man. Obedience is an issue for us. And so let's hear the sweetening influence that comes to us from this preface. First, we have a statement of who God is. I am the Lord. Almighty God declares, I am Yahweh or Jehovah if You're of the older mindset. All of man's duties toward God begin with and are founded upon who and what God is. First, mark the wonder that God reveals himself truly. The names of God which truly reveal his character he's been pleased to give to man. This already is an act, even in the state of innocence, of great condescension. But to those in a state of sin, it is an act of great mercy and grace as he intrudes the light of who he is into our darkened estate. So what should we take from this about who God is? He is Yahweh, the sovereign one. Heinrich Bullinger observes, I'm a little bit off the beaten path these days. I've got Archbishop James Usher, I've got Edward Fisher, and I've got Heinrich Bullinger as my primary conversation partners. (laughs) Heinrich Bullinger observes, he is Lord. He has rule over all creatures. All things are subject to him as Lord. He is Lord alone and doth govern and uphold all things that are. There is no greater authority. There is no greater power than the God who is addressing us right now. Don't be deceived by the vessel of weakness that you see in front of you. (laughs) The Lord spoke to Israel out of flame and shadow and a mountain engulfed in visible majesty. Shall we fault him that he comes to us gently now? Through a fellow servant. But he speaks to you nonetheless. This is how he has come to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the ineffable and consuming majesty, but make no mistake, our God is still a consuming fire. That the fullness of this fire is not revealed as a kindness unto us, but let it not detract from his majesty. He is Yahweh, the self-existent one. Timothy Dwight. Another off the beaten path. (laughs) Timothy Dwight marvels, all other beings are derived and they begin to be. 
He only is underived and without beginning of days or end of years, the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know you're sleepy, but you have a beginning. <laughs> Changing Olivia's diaper, you have a belly button. <laughs> We've all got belly buttons. <laughs> We're all derived. <laughs> Even the one without a belly button was derived. There's only one who is not. There's only one who possesses being, who is being, who gives being. It is the one addressing you right now. You had a beginning. You will have an end. All of us will have ends. All of us have beginnings. There is one who has no beginning, has no end. This is the one who speaks to us as his people. He's Yahweh, the almighty one. Again, Timothy Dwight. The power which gave existence is power which can know no limits. There is no number of finite beings who can move a single world a hair's breadth. And yet God moves this world which we inhabit 68,000 miles an hour. Even Atlas looked like he was burdened. <laughs> the Lord sends us spinning through this system at speeds almost difficult to comprehend. And yet here we are. We fly not off. His power is truly limitless, unfathomable in its depth. We can go on to say more because he says, I am Yahweh. I'm the one who visited you in Egypt. I'm the one who laid Egypt low. I'm the one who makes a mockery of the gods of Egypt. I'm the one who swallowed the vastest army on the planet in a sea, in a moment. I decreated Egypt with my word because I'm the one who creates and upholds all things with my word. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord. I expect my son to attend my word differently than he attends the words of all others, partly because I'm his father. God addresses us here as the true and living God. The one who is incomparable among the hosts of heaven and the ranks of earth. Well, does Timothy Dwight declare, who would not fear, who would not bless, who would not adore that glorious and fearful name, Jehovah our God? There's a some, there is a sense in which the words which follow, as lovely as they are, as unobjectionable as they are, as objectively good as they are, as worthy to be followed in and of themselves as they are. In the final analysis, they're not to be followed, they're not to be heeded because of the objective beauty of their substance, but rather the unsurpassing excellence of the one who speaks them. 
You can convince people to do good if they can see that a thing is good. It's much harder to convince someone to do something simply because of the one who speaks it. For the Christian, that is why we heed these words, because it proceeds from the ineffable one. Israel was confronted with the majesty of Yahweh. And because of the wonder of the one who was speaking, they were to receive that which was spoken as jewels. Indeed, more precious than jewels. Yet this ineffable majesty here invoked here set before Israel, recollects for us a majesty somehow greater in terms of its revelation. For this name recalls to us the name that is above all names, the name that has been given to the Lord Jesus Christ. For God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If the fire on the mountain betokened a majesty, the likes of which would have put our hearts into a dreadful state of fear, the Lord Jesus Christ is a majesty that surpasses those flames. And that's the king we stand before. And he is the one addressing us. Consider Matthew 5, he called to them, they sat down at his feet, and he opened his mouth to teach them. And this brings us to the second point. We trust, we love, and obey him, not just because of the unsurpassed excellency that he is, but because he is your God. That's the exact language of the prologue. I am the Lord, your God. The Lord would have us consider not only the excellencies of who he is, but the wonder that he gives himself freely to his people. And he takes a people utterly undeserving as his special possession to be his people, to stand in this unique relationship to him, that his glory might be made known on this earth. Israel could look around and see how dreadful it was to have another God as the God of that nation. Think about this, right? I am the Lord, your God, which implies what? I'm not their God. In fact, we know their gods. We met them just prior to this in Egypt when I destroyed them all. <laughs> Go read the Exodus account. Who's he going to war with? Egypt and her gods. It says that repeatedly. I'm going to judge the gods of Egypt. I'm going to make known their bankrupt promises. I'm going to make sure they know that I am the true and living God. Israel could look around and be like, man, it's really great that we have the true and living God as our God. That we don't have Seth or Horus or Ra. I don't know what the names are of the Egyptian pantheon. Perhaps you do. I don't know who Pharaoh was calling upon as Yahweh laid him low, but it wasn't Yahweh. And so when he says, I am the Lord your God, they were disposed 
to hear that this is wonderful news because we know how nations with other gods end in destruction and in judgment. The same will be true for Baal. The same will be true for Moloch. Israel watched at the other nations called upon her gods. We watched as our nation called upon her God, didn't we? The God of science. This is too controversial. You heard like religious language, trust the science, like the, like it was a deity and trust like I would offer to my God. Trust the science. That's not new. Go read C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it's just the myth of man. The God of science is just man in a fancy hat. And man has been serving man since time immemorial. Now, don't get me wrong. I bless modern science. I'm the grateful recipient thereof. But our trust isn't there. You put your trust in that, you're going to die. There's lots of modern gods, aren't there? Just because... They don't take the name of Baal or Moloch. Doesn't mean there aren't gods. But the God of Mammon, <laughs> would you say that he's still active? Science, man, you could put anything that might have some sort of relative benefit in that slot and kill yourself and everybody around you by exalting a false god. Israel had ample reason to look around at the nations and say, blessed be the true and living God that you are our God because their gods can't save. The church has ample reason. She should have been looking around. Whether she availed herself of the so-called blessings of science or not, she still should have been able to say, I don't trust in science. I trust in the true and living God. <laughs> She had ample reason to look around and not act with the chaos that everyone else acted with. We failed. We didn't. We were destabilized. We turned on each other. We should be a little sad. But rejoice because we haven't been cast off. <laughs> rejoice because guess what? More trials are coming. Rejoice, because the Lord Jesus Christ overcomes even our failures for good as we're humbled and we look unto our King. But the most astonishing part of this little phrase, your God, is actually that it's in the singular. It's not you plural. It's you singular. The God who made heaven and earth is addressing every individual in the congregation of the redeemed saying, I belong to you and you belong to me. That's a stunning particularity. I am the Lord, your God. And make no mistake, we pray our father, that congregational, that corporate element is an indispensable coordinate. But we also hear the particularity of this knowledge and ownership as an immeasurable blessing. Consider the testimony of the New Testament. Your father knows how many hairs are on your head. That's a stunning particularity of knowledge. 
Your father knows your needs before you even think of what to ask. That's a stunning particularity of knowledge. He knows exactly what season you're in because he's arranged it. Echoing what the psalmist marveled at in Psalm 139. Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. When the fellowship entered the wood of Lady Galadriel, all of their hearts were laid bare before her. They felt as if she peered into their very core. And such knowledge was too wonderful for Gimli, the dwarf, for he left that wood declaring that there was none greater than the Lady Galadriel and that he belonged to her to serve her as queen and lady all his days. To be known intimately by someone so wonderful, so excellent, so sublime, ineffably sublime, to be known by such a one and yet loved in the light of such full and comprehensive knowledge indeed. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot obtain it. Not only is he our God, he's your God. He knows you, beloved. He formed you. He fashioned you. All of his days are in his book. Every path which you have gone down the moment you believed it's all from the Father. Have you bought the lie of chance? We're constantly met with it, aren't we? That the events and circumstances which befall us are just a random falling out. They are not. They are the workings of a heavenly Father in a beloved son, by the wonderful power of the Holy Spirit to bring many sons to glory. Give thanks. He is our God. He is your God. And he has delivered us out of darkest night. And that's how it closes. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Israel groaned under the yoke of Pharaoh. Under the oppressive hand of Egypt, it was a dreadful condition. They were subject to a cruel tyrant. Their groans and their pleas before him found no hearing. He did not care if they suffered and died the most miserable deaths. You can think of Solzhenitsyn's Ivan Denisevich. Have you read this? A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisevich. The dreadful camps. Men were reduced to animals. By their captors. They were afforded less dignity even than cattle are given. Such was the house of slavery. 
from which the groan issued forth. There were no hopes of escape. There were no hopes of life. Lord Jesus Christ takes this image and presses it upon our heart to somehow bring us to understand that our slavery was even more dreadful. (laughs) To be enslaved to death, sin, fear, and an enemy the likes of which we cannot understand. Mark how this sets the former life in its right perspective. Mark if the enemy doesn't seek to deceive us about all of the joys and the pleasures that we had when we were in the house of slavery. This is what he did for Egypt. Israel's life in Egypt. They get to their first hardship. And what do they say? We miss the watermelons. (laughs) We miss the leeks. Sure, we've been eating the bread of angels. But the flesh pots. But he does that, doesn't he? He puts a glittering aspect on the sin that we've forsaken to try to prod us back into that slavery, into that oppression. Here's the true perspective, sinner. When you were sinning, you were enslaved. (laughs) It was oppression, and it was an oppression worked by one who wanted you to die, (laughs) who delighted in your demise. And it was a demise that was far more dreadful than just physical death. It was despair. It was the threat of Mordor. What do they say? Not that they've killed Frodo, but that they're going to subject him to endless torture beyond consideration. That's the sort of death the enemy delights to see us plunged into. And yet he convinces us that somehow the sin which he uses us to plunge us in to such a state is delightful. Let this perspective on the former estate, the house of slavery, it was slavery through and through. And he convinces us it's freedom, doesn't he? That's the myth right now. Freedom is to be able to do whatever I want, unencumbered. And if you get in my way, you're an opponent of liberty. That's the enemy's lie. He's been doing it from the very beginning. True freedom is to be found transgressing God's law. True freedom is to be found in rising up against God. To which we say, for true freedom, Christ has set us free. (laughs) And therefore, we do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed his people, and we now stare at what we can call with James the royal law, the law of liberty. For if you want to know what true freedom is, look at the law. That's what it means to live free. For to live free is to live a life of love unto God. 
To live free is to live a life of love unto neighbor, for this is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. And as we saw this morning, there was no power over him. There was none who enslaved him, for his was the life of liberty in the beauty of righteousness. Beloved, we struggle to see that, and I understand for this war will go on between flesh and spirit unto the end. But let the plainness of God's word woo our hearts to see the life of trust and following after Christ in its right light. This God is worthy to be loved and obeyed and trusted because he is unsurpassed in his excellencies. This God is worthy to be loved and trust and obeyed because he has taken you for his people and he has given himself to you as God. This God is to be loved and trust and obeyed because he did not spare the beloved son as the cost to redeem us from the yoke of bondage and sin. Submit not again to that yoke. Cling to Christ in faith and hope and love. Let's pray. Mm. Almighty God, what a blessing it is to have your word sanctify us by it. Press upon our hearts what we need most, Lord, as you yourself know. Strengthen, correct, retrieve, encourage, and above all, exalt Christ as the author and the finisher of our faith. For we ask in his precious name, amen.